Welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show, brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show. I'm Jim Gawante. He is Chris Bucanani. Chris, welcome in for another week of Penn State Talk. One week closer to the season kicking off, Jim. That's where my mind is at now and will be until late August. Well, do you get excited, though, about uh, when they start spring practice and the blue-white game? Uh, I do. And because I live here in Happy Valley, there is, there's a little energy that crackles through the air whenever there's anything Penn State football going on. In fact, I list blue-white Saturday. It's number five, but it is in my top five of my favorite holidays. <laughs> well, I'll take it. Although I've got to admit, there have been a couple times nice weather for the blue white game, and weather is such a bit major issue when you talk blue white game, right? Correct. Yes. There have been a couple games I've come in. The tailgating has been so good. I didn't make it inside the stadium. I will cop to that as well. <laughs> but that's fine. That's why it's a great holiday. <laughs> that that is true i mean I, that's what i like about the blue white I, I i'm you know that fair weather fan literally give me the good weather i will make the drive into town but i'm probably more anxious for tailgating than i am yes i'll come home i've taped the game i will watch it but if the tailgating is good the temptation is great anyway let's let's move on to the news of the week and you know, Chris, major, major surprise here. The NCAA lost again in court. They are like Who's the so- Washington generals of the American legal system. <laughs> yes, Jim. Who could have seen that coming? Essentially, what happened is the NCAA wanted to punish uh, Tennessee for some NIL violations, essentially, that they were or their representatives were trying to create an inducement for players to go to Tennessee. With the NIL going on, the one rule that they actually have or had was you can't use NIL money as an inducement to either enter the school from high school or transfer in. So very quickly, the, uh, the attorney general at Tennessee, and I think also from Virginia, decided to go to court on this, and they slapped it down right away. Now, it, it was, I guess, what's it called? Temporary injunction to allow Correct. this to go on. Yes. So for now, it's okay. It could still go to court, but with this as the precedent, I suspect the NCAA would lose again if they took it to court. So. What does this all mean, Chris? Well, so to backtrack a little bit, just to look at the situation that we're in, there are three things that I see going on here. Number one is the fact that clearly like the NCAA and and, and college sports, the foundation is built on quicksand. Like what is underlying this injunction is that the social and legal trends are all flowing in one direction, which is why the NCAA just keeps getting losing every time they get into the courtroom. And that's the belief that the equation 
between the balance between the money coming in and the actual value source of the labor that produces it. And I'm using that's like lowercase L, not the, the legal term labor, but just the effort is so off that we now need to take immediate steps to correct it more in favor of the players. So the whole concept of amateurism on which the existence of college sports has been predicated through our entire lives, that's disintegrating as we speak. So that's problem number one. When, when you're on such shaky ground to begin with, then you know, you're, you're off to a terrible start. Then there's also the fact that within the NCAA's Byzantine system of rules and enforcement, they have basically left NIL to just sort of roll, roll across the plains like a tumbleweed. There's been very, very little effort to try to put their arms around it and create structure and make clear guidelines as far as what's allowed and what's not. And I think that's for two reasons. I think part of it is because the organization itself, whether they would come right out and admit it or not, there was an internal realization that they were losing their grip on the sport and this was just too big for them to try to adjudicate. So I, I just don't think they had the resources to do it. And I, I don't think they I don't think they really understood it. I don't think there was internal to the NCAA an understanding of what this was going to be exactly and, and how they could even put rules around it. It just kind of came on them so quickly. And so then that leads to the third problem which is, you know, their foundation's built on quicksand. They don't have a clear set of rules. And then the one rule they do create, they're only equipped to very selectively enforce. And the, the old Jerry Tarkanian line, right? Like the NCAA is so mad at everybody cheating that they've decided to punish Tennessee. Now that's about paraphrasing because he used some uh, small Division three school name. But... I, any way you slice it, if I am coming at the NCAA in terms of court of public opinion or actual, you know, court of law, they're just so outclassed, so far over their skis that, you know, it's they've been on uh, on death watch for a while now, and I think we're we're approaching the zero hour. In our next segment. Uh, Chris, we're going to put the NCAA out of its misery and and talk about that, where it would go. Let's stick. I mean, with- it is a generally useless and largely contemptible organization. And that was my opinion before the Penn State scandal in, in 2011. And now, you know, of course, I, I, I could give I could have given you chapter and verse about things that were bad about the NCAA on, you know, June Whatever, June eleventh, two thousand twelve, and now I can give you one other big reason that I think they're they're really really bad. Well, and the sad part is they could have they could have preempted all of this when they have that you know billion dollar industry, and they're not sharing any of it with the actual players. But I wanted to ask you about where where we're at now, and a lot of people talking about this ruling. The NIL, there's essentially no restraints on it now. And the question is, is this now Armageddon? Is this the end? Because, and the typical argument 
from people who are against NIL is, oh my goodness, what will happen to parity? Well, my take has always been, what parity? There's never been parity. So, and we could go back decade after decade in college football with demonstration of the lack of parity. So my question is, we all fear this, but in the end, is it really going to make a change on the field? Well, I don't think this is making, I don't think this makes much of a difference at all, to be honest with you, because all of this was going on already. It's like I said, you know, July 1st, 2021, the NCAA just basically says like, okay, guys, it's the Wild West. I know that analogy gets used a lot, but it's apt. They just do whatever you want. And so, of course, if you're going to have an unrestrained system where all of a sudden, the, you know, the old uh, bag man, McDonald's bag full of cash, SEC world comes above board and these programs slowly start to figure out, hey, like, yeah, maybe we have to do some workarounds with a collective or whatever. But we're now we're in a talent marketplace, a literal marketplace where we got to go out and buy talent. Of course, that money is going to be used to induce recruits. And it's preposterous to suggest that it wouldn't be. Or again, if we're trying to be at all logically consistent, that it shouldn't be, which is going back to why the NCAA created the quagmire in which it now finds itself helplessly mired. So all this stuff has been going on already. That's why I thought it was really terrible that they were going after Tennessee as if they were the only ones. Every school's doing it. Every school, I promise you. And I think it's actually better now that we can have it all above board and and out in the open. So yeah, I, I think the belief that NIL was going to impact parity was was always maybe a little misguided because college sports by its nature has always been a sport of haves and have nots. In fact, if you look back at the last season and the number of schools that were in contention for the playoff spots and how attractive the 12 team playoff bracket would have looked like if it existed for 2023, you can even make an argument that compared to the previous nine years of the 14 playoff, it's possible that NIL has actually leveled the playing field and created a little more parity where it didn't exist previously. So then you ask the question, how does this particular injunction, this ability to just like openly, um, you know, entice recruits and, you know, quote unquote, tamper, with players on another team's roster by offering them money. How does that impact the sport? I I think very, very little because all of it was going on anyway. And I am of the feeling that this actually may help with parity because it, it introduces a new variable to how a team could, how, how a school could build a team. So, and, Prior to this, we had, you know, Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State. They were at the elite. Other teams could not compete with them because it was, you know, the coaching staff, the reputation, the tradition, the amount of money that went into coaching staffs and into facilities and all that, that made those schools at the top. Now, all of a sudden, if all it takes is money to get into the game, Another school could say, hey, wait a minute, it's worth it for us. So an old old Miss could say, we're going to invest in this. We're going to invest in players, and that'll give us a chance to compete. So I'm of the feeling we may actually get more parity because of it, Chris. 
I think it's possible. And like I said, I think there was some evidence for that this past season that maybe you're going to see the pool of legitimate, whatever you want to say, final four or national title contenders, certainly playoff contenders is going to expand as a result of what you just said. And, and look, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next segment, but the one thing that I am a little nervous about is what we refer to as like the tampering. You can't have a system where it is just open season and you're like constantly having to re-recruit the players on your own roster. I mean, that's just asinine and not healthy for the sport. So that's something they're going to have to address and button up long term. Uh, They will. And as you mentioned, next segment, I'm going to ask you the question, okay, if the NCAA is incapable of running this, should it be run a different way? We'll talk about it when we get back right after this break. Having multiple sportsbook accounts is the simplest way to get the best available odds, and there's never been a better time to sign up. When you visit our page, signupexpert.com slash KSN, you'll be connected to all the sportsbooks in your region. All of these sportsbooks have valuable sign-up offers for new users, and through our link, you'll automatically receive the top offer at each one. If you want to take advantage of these benefits, sign up for your next sportsbook at signupexpert.com slash KSN, or see the preferred sportsbook button on our app. It's quarter number two on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. He's Chris Buccanani. I am Jim Galante. It's quarter two and we are talking about the NCAA and the most recent ruling, Chris, that went against the NCAA, they went after Tennessee, uh, and they went to the court. The, the NCAA, just if if you were betting money against the NCAA through the years in the court system, you're a rich man now. <laughs> the NCAA doesn't win those at all. But it kind of leads to the question, okay. They lost 9 nothing at the Supreme Court. <laughs> How is that even possible? Yes, yes. You'd think you'd just show up. It'll be split between party lines like everything else. But no, not only did they get shut out 9 nothing, they got scolded in the ruling, okay, the written ruling. They lost as bad as, as you could. They should have mercy ruled it, okay? That's how bad they lost. And it kind of leads to the question, okay, what now? And you and I have both used the same quote from uh, Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So can we use that same kind of phrasing for the NCAA, or is there a better form of collegiate football government than the NCAA? Is there another path to travel, Chris? Before I answer that question, I do just want to note, it didn't have to go down this way. I think you alluded it to when we started this conversation. Like these are, look, these are very intelligent people who are holding these positions, okay? You can't get into this line of work and be in that field without having brain power. But one thing I always say is that intelligence is a characteristic, not a virtue. Okay, it's all about what you do with your brain. And there are a lot of dumb, smart people 
And I think the the halls of the NCAA headquarters in Indianapolis are chock full of dumb, smart people. And so these people are also greedy and they're also short-sighted. And going all, I've mentioned this before, going all the way back to the Ed O'Bannon case about use of his likeness in a NCAA basketball game more than a decade after his playing career was over and that going against college sports, you could see the writing on the wall. And certainly the people in the building are smart enough and the people in the colleges that can prize the NCAA, these people are intelligent enough to have been able to put all the pieces together and see where this is going. But they were too greedy and too short-sighted to preempt it and get in front of it and keep control of the narrative and the process. And so now here we are with it just falling apart around our ears and having this conversation, well, what the hell are we going to do to preserve this sport? Because the governing body that for whatever flaws it has, has held it together for over a century is just about to scatter to the winds. So my, well, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, just go ahead, finish up your thought. Well, I know because I was about to take it in a different direction, and I want to hear your reaction before we go into it. I think that's the key. This should have been fixed a decade ago, at least. And they could have, and it would not have cost them an arm and a leg. They could have kept control, kept power on it. But what they've allowed to have happen is, right now, the power is not with the NCAA. The power is with the conferences, Big Ten and Southeast Conference specifically, and perhaps even more so, television. ESPN and Fox essentially run run college football. Right. They did, if they didn't want more playoff games, it wouldn't be a 12-team playoff, Chris. It's, if it wasn't for Fox, you wouldn't have those West Coast teams entering the Big Ten. So all of these things now happening, it's being run by the conferences and probably even more so by television. Yeah, and, and to your analogy, it wouldn't have cost them an arm and a leg to keep control of it, but it maybe may, might have cost them an arm and a foot. I mean, there would it would have meant literally giving up some of the money that was flowing into the system. And I don't know whether the decision was conscious or, again, it was just a function of being short-sighted, but either way, the got to the same point. And that was, we are just going to squeeze every last nickel out of this current system until someone, be it the courts or Congress or whomever, comes in and just shuts us down completely. So instead of having like a slow ramp into whatever was coming next, they were like, no, we're just going to keep our foot on the accelerator. We're going to keep every single penny as long as we can take it. And then at one point or another, the road's going to run out and we're going to go off the edge of the cliff. So, yeah, the, the history of how college football bridges from what it was into what it's going to become is not going to be kind to the people who have been in charge of the sport in the 21st century. I am of, go ahead. No, I was going to say, okay, then what next? What can be done? So I'm of the probably unpopular opinion that I have been thinking about this a lot and looking at it from a bunch of different directions. And it seems inevitable that there is going to be a calling of even the FBS programs now in between a top and a lower tier. So the, really, we're talking about the Big Ten 
and the SEC and maybe a few programs out of the ACC that can get absorbed into one of those two conferences? Real quick, how many teams do you picture in that? Uh, I mean, probably somewhere between 40 and 48. The only issue I have with that, or I think they will have with it, is if you just reduce it by that much, you still need teams to lose, okay? Yeah. (laughs) So I think it might be bigger than that because – if you're the good teams or more so the teams that are in the middle, like right now, I could go 4-0 non-conference, go, you know, within the conference, go 4-4, and and I'm 8-4, and I, you know, coach's contract gets renewed, I fill up the stadium. If you cut down the number of teams too much, you cut out some sure wins. I think you need, to use your uh, expression, we need some Washington Generals also. Huh. That's well, what I think. Well, that's that's what Rutger and Indiana are for. <laughs> okay. That's why they get to keep riding the gravy train. Congratulations, Vanderbilt. Uh, your grandfather did. Yeah, I, I do think the counterpoint to that is that, you know, you look at professional sports and, you know, you, you know, you expand playoffs, add wild cards. Each loss in the regular season becomes less consequential. And that's probably the direction this is moving. And again, it's for very pragmatic reasons. Uh, the The uniqueness of the old school college football season was, I mean, it was compelling television, right? Where every game mattered and one loss could take you out of contention for the mythical national championship. I'm going all the way back. But it was, again, going back to amateurism, also a function of the fact that the schools didn't have to pay the players. And I mean, the the big dividing line in modern college football is going to be who can afford to keep an operation going when your players are classified as employees, right? And it's that number is not going to be much higher than 48. It might even be smaller. So it's a Big Ten, the SEC, um, Notre Dame, and some ACC schools. So going back to my unpopular view of that, I think – as they move away and become like a de facto developmental league for the NFL and they become more and more formally professionalized, I do think that just by the nature of the sport, they're going to have to continue to maintain ties to their colleges. They wouldn't have to necessarily, but I I think it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't. And I think that there are ways for that to happen. And again, I think you see maybe the uh, sports – the uh, revenue sports spin-off is a for-profit corporation. There's an attached 501c3 that funds some, not all, but some of the former varsity sports so that you'll see some other men's and women's Olympic sports at these schools that are subsidized to some degree by their, you know, quote unquote, pro sports arm. But I think the NFL probably should get in and become more formally involved with that organization. I think it would be good from a stability standpoint, from a governance standpoint, there have got to be some revenue benefits for both sides. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think if this is going to be what it's moving towards, which is a professional league that is developing above all professional football players, that the premier professional football organization on the planet needs to have some formal stake and role in it. And I'd rather see that than private equity get involved, Jim, for sure. Well, 
here's my kind of what I would call a fix, but doesn't go quite as far as what you would do. Tell me what you think of this idea. Whether it's under the auspices of the NCAA or they break off as a group, I would leave like every team that was in the traditional Power Five. So you'd have 60-some teams. If schools want to opt out, let them opt out. But I think you need some teams in there that will lose games also. But as players, how about start paying the players? Here's my suggestion on how that would work and try to take care of the transfer portal. You pay players $100,000 a year, but they sign a contract with a three-year commitment to the school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the contract yeah, I think that's going to have to be part of it for sure. No matter how it works out with your career as a player, you signed a three-year contract. We're going to pay you $100,000 a year all three years. Yeah, fully guaranteed. Now, now, I may be a superstar where I don't want to make that commitment where I'm stuck with this school for uh, three years. I want to be able to have free agency, and I'm going to kill it in the NIL anyway, so hundred grand does not mean all that much to me. Yeah. Fine. So you have those guys. But I'm thinking that a good number of the players would take that between $100,000 a year, the value of your scholarships about fifty grand a year. That's not a bad way to start life, Chris. And I've got three years of it guaranteed. And oh, by the way, that 85 players, if I give them $100,000 and, and my calculator's working, that's $8.5 million per year. Which, by the way, is about how much you pay your head coach anyway. So <laughs> is it really right. going to, is it really going to kill the school? And uh, we're running out of time, but your thoughts on that idea. No, I like that. And I, and I appreciate the two tiered approach that allows you to separate the, the star players who can take a bigger risk, but then, you know, see a bigger reward. I think there's some real potential there. I do. That's an, that's an interesting concept. All right, Chris, that's going to have to be the last word for this segment. Next quarter, we're going to talk some basketball. But I kind of cut you short, didn't give you much time to answer. I'll let you uh, fulfill that uh, answer. Give us the full answer to that idea when we come back. Having multiple sportsbook accounts is the simplest way to get the best available odds, and there's never been a better time to sign up. When you visit our page, signupexpert.com slash KSN, you'll be connected to all the sportsbooks in your region. All of these sportsbooks have valuable sign-up offers for new users, and through our link, you'll automatically receive the top offer at each one. If you want to take advantage of these benefits, sign up for your next sportsbook at signupexpert.com slash KSN, or see the preferred sportsbook button on our app. Let's get back to the action on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. And welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. He's Chris. I'm Jim. Chris, we've been talking about the NCAA and everything going on with it. When we finished up quarter two, and I want to give you a chance to give a complete answer, I had made the suggestion that I thought you could fix several things at once. Pay the football players. Pay them $100,000 a year, but they make a three-year commitment to you. That helps you on the transfer portal basis. And if a player wants to opt out of that, they don't have to take the deal. 
if they're a star player, think they could do better, and want to maintain their free agency after every year, they could choose not to. But I think a good number, if not a good majority of the players, would take you up on that deal. Let me let you finish the thought on that idea. Yeah, like I said, I do think the two-tiered system is... And it's a really interesting idea. I have to think about it a little bit more for sure, because one of the problems I think we have right now in this weird interstitial period between 2019, when OG college football died, and some future year in the 2020s when we settle on what it's going to be, is I think it's bad for the health of the sport that I, as a fan, don't know who's going to be on my roster from season to season and sometimes month to month. If you, if you bring in Storm Duck and he's here for like half a <laughs> cup of coffee and then he's at Louisville, right? I That's not good for me as a fan. And I don't dispute that it might be more fair to the players, but I, I do wonder, is it is it going to be bad for fan interest and, and commitment and enthusiasm if you have star quarterbacks jumping from program to program based on who's getting a more enticing offer. So I'd have to think about that a little bit, but it, it, it's, um, it's a compromise that I think could solve a lot of problems. I do think one of the issues is, so I, I like your system. I, I do just see one of the issues cropping up now uh, with the conversation around the NCAA football video game from EA, their deal was we're like, look, we've got a, there's like 15,000 of you. We've, we want to get into this game. Uh, it costs a lot of money to program one of these things. And we actually got, it's a for-profit enterprise. We're not a nonprofit. We're trying to make a little money on this thing. So if you want to be in the game and get 600 bucks and a free copy of the game. Well, now there's a group that is like, there's no official, trade organization for college football athletes, but there's a group that's trying to present itself as one. And they're saying, Oh, this is a bad deal. You know, they're getting, you know, they're getting screwed. They're not getting enough money. And there are many, many, many players who are like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. I just want my 600 bucks. Like I I want want the game. game. Yeah. Shut up. Just shut up. I'm not, you know, you don't represent me. And I, I do think, you know, all these things, you're talking about the, the, the three years and a hundred grand and like, what are the rules? What are the restrictions on that? What's your commitment as a player? All of that is going to have to be collectively bargained. And when you look at the pro sports and the difficult of difficulty of collective bargaining, like when there's a player lockout and the view of the ownership is like, well, listen, let's just starve them out because they have a few star players at the top. And a lot of rank and file guys who do kind of live like the that lifestyle's equivalent of paycheck to paycheck. Let's just hold them out. Well, listen, the majority, but vast, vast majority of people in an NCAA players union, even if it's only like the 48 schools we talked about previously, they're not going to be going to play in the NFL. It's mostly going to be guys who want the 600 bucks and to be in the video game. And there's going to be difficulties just because of the massive number of guys involved to get to um, a players association that is cohesive enough to have real power at the bargaining table. So that's one fly I see in the ointment here. It's going to have to happen. But I think figuring it out and getting your arms around it is going to be a big problem. And we see how labor negotiations go in this country 
it is not unlikely that whatever entity ends up negotiating on behalf of players in the future is going to get jerked around a little. And so um, there's going to have to be a lot of wrangling. And, and I hope, I hope retaining the spirit of this sport from where it started, a little bit of goodwill on the side of the colleges and universities that are being represented on the other side, on the management side, quote unquote, that we get to something that can create a sport we can all continue to enjoy that is, you know, both sustainable and, and fair for all the players who are involved. But anyway, I do I do want to talk a little bit about Return to Rex, so I don't, I don't want to opine on that for too, too much longer. <laughs> we'll have plenty of time through the offseason to talk about it more, Chris. For sure. And I'm just telling you, the end result is you're going to end up saying, Jim, I should have just listened to you from the start. <laughs> you had the right idea. I, I do <laughs> like it. I, I like your proposed system, for sure. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Rec Hall Miracle. You were there, Chris. I, I, I watched it on TV. Loved it. What a great show it was watching it. What was it like to be there? And what is your plan going forward using Rec Hall for basketball? Yeah. So whatever you can say about year one of the Mike Rhodes era, and I think there was a lot of positives to be taken from it here at Penn State, despite as of our recording, the basketball team being at 500 and a game under in conference play, they are 2-0 and in buildings designed by architect Charles <laughs> Z. Clowder. Because as true Penn State basketball fans will know, Earlier this season, Penn State defeated Michigan in Philadelphia's The Palestra, one of the great meccas of college basketball. And both Rec Hall and The Palestra were designed by the same architect. And if you pull up pictures of them, if you go right now and you Google pictures of The Palestra, you look at Rec Hall, it is obvious. So I, I, I first of all, I love that. I love that we play a game in the palestra. I think it's good for the profile of the program. I think it's good for the recruiting pipeline. And I also love to go back to Rec Hall. I know the audience for this show is all over the map in terms of age and length of time being a Penn State fan. Uh, Rec Hall, which is the, the, the like the old recreation building on campus where uh, volleyball plays and gymnastics and it's the home of Penn State wrestling. That was the original home of, or, or an, an early home of Penn State men's basketball. When we were part of the Atlantic 10 conference back in the seventies and eighties, we played games at rec hall. And then when Penn State joined the big 10, the requirements for the type of arena you play in were a little headier. And so we had to construct the Bryce Jordan center. So every once in a while, I think this is the fourth time they've had a return to rec game where, and we're now three and one in those games, I believe where they retrofit rec hall for basketball. The first thing I will say is that modern basketball arena designs, Jim have done no favors for the atmosphere compared to the, their predecessors. Like I think about the difference between Chicago Stadium, the Madhouse on Madison versus the United Center. That, ca that, that came split dab right in the middle of the Bulls' sixth championship run in the 90s. United Center was big and fresh and new and beautiful. It had nothing 
on Chicago <laughs> Stadium in terms of how close the fans were to the court. That's where it's at. You look at every great college basketball environment in America, it's all about proximity of the fans to the court. So just having uh, the that claustrophobic feel of the student section and, and, and all the fans, right? We were three rows away from courtside. And it was awesome and it was loud. Just the, 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 the vibration of the air when it got loud in there was just like nothing you were going to get inside the Bryce Jordan Center. So very, very cool. It was, it was a great game against number 12, Illinois, that I think showed off all the very best aspects of year one under Mike Rhodes. It was competitive. It was well-played throughout it was not like you had 38 minutes of bad basketball and a mad rush at the end there was there's a very good illinois team that deserves to be in the top 15 and penn state played them tough throughout there were runs the lead changed hands a couple of times and then you just had a miraculous ending and it was it was it was perfect it was really a wonderful night great atmosphere great environment so I, I'm sure there's a cost associated every time you got to go back to Rec Hall, but they've got to do it more than they have. Well, and I think the biggest cost is the opportunity lost to bring in 10,000 people in Bryce Jordan Center versus 6,500 at Rec Hall. Well, Jim, and- I'm going to be honest with you. That may not be the cost that you imagine it to be. <laughs> 10,000 theoretical people, okay? <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, it's an opportunity cost. What I wonder is, is there a compromise? And I, I should have studied this a little more closely, but it looks like attendance on a weekend is much greater at yeah, Bryce Jordan sure. than during the week. Would a compromise solution be play Rec Hall during the week and play Bryce Jordan in the weekend? I have heard that suggested. Again, I don't know what it costs to do a game inside the Jordan Center. I don't, or excuse me, inside Rec Hall. I don't know, like logistically, how is that going to interfere with the other sports that play in there? So I, I don't want to just give a blanket endorsement of play every weekday game in there. But I think for sure, there's no reason why you can't study it and, and consider doing it a few times. And I, I like the idea of playing at least one of your non-conference games and one of your conference games there every season. And just because the, the, the nostalgia and the home court advantage combined, and I think you could charge a little bit more for the tickets. Like the first time they did the, the, the return to rec, it was, you know, it was a one-off. We had to get Princeton to come up here on an open date and we played the game. And so you had to buy the tickets outside your regular season ticket package. And and we bought them and I'd buy them. I'd buy them every year if they did it. And if it cost more to go to a rec hall game, like I'd pay a little more to be there just because it's the, the novelty and the advantage that I think it gives to the program. I'd be happy to support that. So I think at least two rec hall games per year is a, a realistic goal to get started. Well, and they've done just- that. They've done two in a season previously. It's a special event. It, it is. It's special. It's unique. It's like when the wrestling team goes to Bryce Jordan Center. It's an event. It's to be celebrated, and you want to be there. You don't want to miss the event. I feel, I, I don't want to say it's a whiteout, but it's the same idea. It's a special event 
that's more than just the game itself. I'd like to see them do it more often. All right, Chris, that is it for quarter number three. We're going to say goodbye to you. We have Shane Paul from For the Bloggy coming in for quarter number four. You want to stay tuned for that. Having multiple sportsbook accounts is the simplest way to get the best available odds, and there's never been a better time to sign up. When you visit our page, signupexpert.com slash KSN, you'll be connected to all the sportsbooks in your region. All of these sportsbooks have valuable sign-up offers for new users, and through our link, you'll automatically receive the top offer at each one. If you want to take advantage of these benefits, sign up for your next sportsbook at signupexpert.com slash KSN, or see the preferred sportsbook button on our app. We head to the home stretch in quarter number four on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. I'm Jim Galante along with our special guest from For the Bloggy, Shane Paul. Shane, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Yes, sir. Good to be back. I know we're we're kind of in the heat of the off season. We're, we're all going through withdrawals, but we're uh, we're getting through. And uh, March Madness will be here soon enough. So until then, we'll have to just deal with football talk at the very least. And one of the uh, great topics is new offensive coordinator at Penn State. A lot of folks are excited about Andy Kotelnicki coming in. And you did a great article on the For the Bloggy website. And for all of our listeners, if you want to read the article and all the other great stuff from For the Bloggy, go to ForTheBloggy.com. And a lot of great stuff there. But Shane, you took a look at Andy Kotelnicki's concepts for the RPO. And, and the first thing, that you, concept that you talk about is getting the defense distorted. That's that's the word that Andy Kotelnicki uses. What does he mean by that? Yeah, um, distorted can go can go a couple different ways, but uh, I think the the main adjective is, is confusion. You want to confuse defenses as much as you can. Um, he likes to do that through shifts and motions, really, um, and also using tempo. So. You know, starting in like a zero by four formation and then, you know, shifting into a two by two and then adding motion on top of that. Uh, You'll see defenses pointing everywhere, uh, trying to, you know, rotate safeties in and out of the box. um, And it creates distortion because you're forcing them to communicate. Well, let's talk about the how motion does that and how that works just by putting – a couple players in motion moving around across the formation that also gives a message to the quarterback too, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually a way that Andy Andy Kotelnicki likes to kind of structure his offense. Um, He ran a lot of stuff at Kansas where um, he would empty out the backfield. So send the running back on like an exit motion um, and it creates an easy read for the quarterback. So you can, you know, a, a run concept of your choosing up the middle um, with a swing screen to the running back. And if a linebacker, uh, or in some cases a safety, runs with the backer, it immediately tells the quarterback he's running because they now have numbers in the box. Um, so motion just kind of – it gives easy answers, and uh, it's a way for uh, the quarterback to kind of settle into the game um, and always stay right. And 
it was interesting. It sounded like at some points that there's a the quarterback actually pre-snap could read the defense enough to know what he's going to do. Typically, when I hear people talk about RPO, it puts uh, a specific defender in conflict that the quarterback is reading that one defender. It may be the defensive end or a safety or a linebacker. And post-snap, you read, does he take the step forward? Does he take the step back? But it looked like with some of these concepts, it was even before the snap is even made, a player goes in motion, took a couple defenders with him, and all of a sudden you had numbers in the box. I have five or perhaps six blockers, and there's only five defenders in the box. So I'm actually making a decision as a quarterback before the ball is even snapped. Is that correct? Yeah, so that, that's kind of a way to, to settle quarterbacks into the game. Um, like you said, it, you're creating a, a very concrete black and white yes or no system. Does somebody run with our motion guy? If so, I'm going to keep the ball up the middle. If not, then you know we have an answer outside. And that was interesting because, like I said, typically you see an RPO or have it explained, it's always – post-snap, you're reading a specific defender. So now if we have the concept with the RPO, someone's in motion, maybe takes people with them, and then the uh, obviously still RPO, you have options of running or passing the ball. But I found it interesting. This is the first time I read with the idea of a specific route complements the RPO more than some others. And you talked about using um, a glance route. First of all, can you explain what a glance route is and why that's so much more effective in an RPO offense? Yeah, I might be a little biased. This is definitely my, my favorite route in football, but um, I like to describe it as kind of like if a slant and a post had a baby, it would be a glance. Um, typically run at five steps. It's a lot of times measured by steps. Um, but that usually comes out to like eight to 10 yards. Um, and I like it for a couple of reasons. One, it, it times up really well with RPO. So if you think about like a hitch, for example, that receiver is going to be coming out of their break within one and a half, two seconds of the ball being snapped. Um, so that gives the quarterback that much time to make a decision. It also gives uh, whoever the conflict defender is, that much time to kind of sit in the gray area, which then, you know, leads to misreads, um, that kind of stuff. The beauty of it with the glance is that it takes just long enough that the conflict defender has to declare themselves. So typically it's with a safety. Um, so I, th I think I highlighted this in the article. Um, if a safety keys on the run, they're going to have to do it uh, by the time that the, the glance route is being kind of broken to the post or to the slant. Um, so it leaves a void. Uh, it just times up really well with the play overall. And the other thing that you pointed out that I thought was interesting is some of those like a hitch route or just where a player settles, turns, settles in, he's not moving. With the glance route, he's already in motion. So if you hit the receiver in stride, the yards after catch are going to be uh, much greater. Yeah, that that's a common football uh, philosophical point these days is throwing to receivers while they're moving um the majority of that is because there's kind of been an uptick in, in man coverage and 
running a hitch or a curl against man is just never going to be where you want to live because I mean, think about it. If I'm, if I'm trying to get away from you, um, I'm going to have much more success with that when I keep running instead of stopping my feet. Um, so that's kind of why teams are starting to get away from running that stagnant uh, route tree uh, is because you're kind of putting yourself in a box when defenses play man. And I'll tell you what, I love of reading information about football. Like you said, this is that long off season. So this is the time for Jim to learn things. And you used a, an expression called a flop read. Could you explain what that is for our listeners? So most of the times uh, when defenses – so when the RPO came out, what, five, ten years ago now, um, defensive coordinators were scrambling, trying to figure out how are we going to defend this thing. Uh, and the, the way they defend everything is they, they try to find tendencies. So, like, you go to the University of Georgia, you go to Ohio State, and the defensive office, they're going to have binders full of, you know, their rivals and their tendencies – um, and something that people found with RPO is that whichever side that the quarterback turns his shoulders to, so whichever side that his chest is facing, um, that is the side in which that the route uh, he's reading is on. So the flop read kind of counters that because, say, the, the run is going to the right, so the quarterback uh, turns his shoulders and they're now facing the right sideline, but he'll turn all the way and look back to usually the weak safety. Um, and that – it's a tendency breaker essentially because now you're reading the safety opposite of where your shoulders are pointed. Um, and defenses were essentially shifting the coverage uh, to the side in which the quarterback was facing. Um, so they were leaving huge voids kind of on the, on the backside. Uh, so the flop read w was a way to take advantage of that um, and keep defenses honest. Okay. So now the other thing, that you talked about here is when we talk about RPO, there's also concepts that people confuse it with a, a zone read where the options are the quarterback to hand it off to the running back or perhaps run himself. We've talked about that a lot on our show. And the issue has always been, well, Drew Aller would never keep the ball on that particular option. Now, in Andy Kotelnicki's offense, he has the quarterback keeping the ball. And is that going to be an issue now with Drew Aller as the quarterback? Uh, I look back to – I started following Andy Kotelnicki when he was at Buffalo. They were, had really explosive offense in the MAC there. Um, and he had, I believe, Kyle Vantrese was his name, who similar – he wasn't quite as big as Drew Aller, but similar – athletic capabilities um, and he kind of just structured the offense uh, to eliminate quarterback runs for the most part. I can assure you he's going to carry, like he carried Drew Aller carried the ball a fair amount this year more than I thought he would. I don't think that number will go down at all. Um, but I don't think we need to be scheming up, uh, you know, runs for, for Drew. And I don't think Andy does either. Uh, if I had to guess, it would be a lot more draw and, and like quarterback counter things that are inside the tackles and don't really require him to capture the edge. Um, but overall, I, I don't think that the the true triple option stuff that he ran at Kansas uh, will be implemented in Happy Valley, unless, for whatever reason, we get uh, number nine in the game somehow. So we'll see. If we, if we see both Oprah Bowl, uh, the interesting thing, and our listeners know, 
all too well. I've talked about it over and over again. Penn State would run these read options, except the quarterback would never keep the ball. So why run that play if you're never going to let the quarterback run the ball? That kind of leads me to uh, this question in the last minute or so we have left, uh, Shane, is Mike Yursich was an RPO guy also, and a lot of people are. What makes Andy Kotelnicki's RPO different from everybody else's? I think he presents them in a wide variety of ways. Yursich kind of had his five or six RPO concepts that he ran, um, and he really wouldn't vary too much from them. Uh, kind of glance bubble, uh, you know, tight end in the flat, those kind of things. Um, Kotelnicki keeps the reads the same, but he presents those plays in a wide variety of ways. And he does that, like we talked about earlier, um, with uh, shifts, motions, pre-snap movement, and uh, – Formate, like unbalanced formations. That's another thing I highlighted in the article. You know, half the offense on one side of the ball um, and really just doing unorthodox things that forces defenses to prepare for and communicate. Well, that's interesting. We're, we are all curious about seeing this Andy Kotelnicki offense. The spring game will be coming up in April for us guys who need our football fix. I'm not sure how much he will show us then, but we'll all be anxious to see what happens come fall. Shane, thank you so much. One more reminder, go to fortheblogging.com to see more from Shane and all our other friends over there. But for now, thank you all for listening. Make sure you join us next time on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Thanks, Jim. Having multiple sportsbook accounts is the simplest way to get the best available odds, and there's never been a better time to sign up. When you visit our page, signupexpert.com slash KSN, you'll be connected to all the sportsbooks in your region. All of these sportsbooks have valuable sign-up offers for new users, and through our link, you'll automatically receive the top offer at each one. If you want to take advantage of these benefits, sign up for your next sportsbook at signupexpert.com slash KSN, or see the preferred sportsbook button on our app.